We are so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, if you have a middle school or high school kid, uh, Beach Camp is coming up and White Mill Summer Camp. Uh, we are super excited. I'm going to be at both of those weeks. I'm speaking at middle school camp and then at high school beach camp. Uh, I will be there because it was a free trip to the beach. And so uh, I will be there too. So make sure and sign your high schoolers up. Both weeks are going to be an amazing time. And so make sure you do that and do that soon if you haven't already. You can sign up through the app or stop at the Welcome Center and talk to one of our staff and we'd be glad to help you. Now, we are in part three of this series, Better, and we have been asking some questions of ourselves. And this is based on a book I read a couple years ago, uh, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And so we've been kind of walking through this. So if you've missed any weeks, go back and take a listen to them. Uh, but if you've been tracking along, essentially the idea is what the key to making better decisions is asking better questions not only of yourself, but also the situation that you find. Good questions actually set us up for better decisions. The problem is sometimes when most of us make decisions, we already think that we know everything, all right? Or we're, we're confident, or today we're talking about we think we can control outcomes. But I believe if we will stop and ask better questions, we'll actually make better decisions. Your life will be better, and the lives of the people who depend on you will be better as well. Because the reality is, and we know this, and if you don't, you should know this, our decisions don't only impact us. They impact the people around us. And so we have to make sure that we consider that whenever we are doing that. And our decisions don't only impact us, they impact the people around us, but so do our regrets, right? And so in week one, we took a look at this verse. It comes from Proverbs chapter 27. And it says this, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. So this is someone that sees something, it's these red flag moments where they look at it and they go, okay, this doesn't feel right, as we're going to talk about today. But the simpleton, and I just love that word, I want to start calling people simpletons, you're a simpleton, goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. So the idea is the simpleton, this, the simple, the naive, they don't think about the consequences of these choices they're making. And they just keep going forward. And eventually, some of them end up paying a penalty. Now, we talked about this. When we think about people like this, we're talking about people, and some of us maybe are in this category. We only focus on the immediate, not the ultimate. So we make choices based on how we feel this moment, not thinking about the long-term consequences of the decisions that we make. And so it should be the other way. We should always focus on the ultimate, not the immediate. So we started with week one. We asked the question, Am I being honest with myself? So when it comes to decision-making, are you being honest with yourself? When you make a choice, are you being honest with yourself about why you're making that choice? Now, the reality is you may still choose to make that choice, but at least you know. At least you know whether you were or weren't being honest with yourself. Are you trying to sell yourself on something? Because here's the thing. We sell ourselves, and we are the easiest people to convince is the person in the mirror that what you're doing or what you're choosing is the right decision. Then last week we said this, when all you have is a story to tell, what story do you want people to tell? So when all your life is is a story that you go back and you tell people, or more importantly, that your children or grandchildren tell, what story do you want them to tell? Do you want them to tell a good story? Do you want them to tell a bad story? We all want stories where we don't have to skip large periods of the story. We all want to tell a story where we don't have to skip large details of the story because it's too embarrassing or it's too hurtful. And so when all that's left is a story that's told about you, what story do you want to tell? Which brings us to our third question. And this is the one that we're going to kind of shift in the series. We're going to talk about this week and next week a little bit. But here's the thing. Whenever we face a decision of any magnitude... 
Now, for some of us, we're dramatic and we think every decision is of magnitude. It's not, okay? But some of us, all right, when we face these decisions that are of great magnitude, sometimes what happens, if we're honest, is there's a tension in that decision. And the question is, is there a tension that deserves my attention? When I'm making a decision, when I'm considering options, okay, and I'm thinking through these things, do you feel any tension in these choices? The best way to describe this is we all grew up with this, especially if you watch Looney Tunes or you watch The Simpsons or something like that. Sometimes in these cartoons, what would happen is there would be a choice that someone has to make. And there would be two characters that appear on their shoulders. Remember, there's the, the angel and the devil, right? All right? And they're listening to both sides, and they're trying to figure out which one they're going to let help them make a decision. This is, they didn't realize this, this is the exact thing that we're talking about. That is the tension. You've got options when you're making a choice. Which side am I going to listen to? Now, what happens sometimes is when we're having these choices that we're having to make, what happens is something doesn't feel right about one of the choices. And it causes us to pause and hesitate. And we should ask questions like, why is this bothering me? What is bothering me about this choice? Right? Maybe you've heard this referred to as like a red flag moment. It's one of these moments in life where you go, I can't put my finger on it. But something just doesn't seem right to me about this. It's one of these moments where you have this internal sense that I don't know what it is, but something just doesn't feel right about the choice that I'm about to make. And when you feel that tension, when you feel that moment kind of come up, you should pause and pay attention. Don't ignore it like this sound. Do you all hear that sound? Is there... I don't know what it is. Is somebody watching the game? That's okay. You can, but just turn it down a little bit. I've been trying, like, I'm thinking in my notes, I'm like, I'm trying to ignore this sound, and I just keep hearing it. So anyway, all right, don't ignore it. Don't brush by it. Don't rush it. Don't talk about it in a sermon because it's awkward. All right. So, all right. But pay attention to this tension, right? Pay attention to it. Let it bother you. Now, the problem is, of course, that that's not easy to do. It's not easy sometimes to stop and to actually pay attention to what it is that's bothering us, right? It's difficult at times. We've talked about focalism. Focalism is the idea that when it blurs and exaggerates things to where you feel like there's no other choice. Confirmation bias, we talked about in week two, distorts things to where you think that's the only choice. Sometimes when it comes to making a choice, the problem is we're in a hurry, right? Or somebody else is in a hurry, or we feel like we're being pressured to make a decision quickly, right? We feel like we're, we're being pressured to kind of make this decision quickly. And so what happens is because we feel this pressure from outside sources, because we feel this pressure internally, we're under the impression that we have to make this decision now, that we have to do it right now. The other thing is sometimes when it comes to making decisions, we're under the impression that it's not bothering anybody else. So there's this tension and you think, well, I'm the only person that feels it. And because I'm the only person that feels it, and it's not really bothering anybody else, then, then maybe it's just something wrong with me. What happens sometimes in those situations is we realize that it's actually bothering other people. It's actually disturbing other people as well. The problem is no one was willing to speak up about it. All right? And so we need to wrestle with that tension okay, whenever this happens. And then there's this. 
We've all had this experience where we're considering an option. You're in the middle of making a decision, and, and there's something is coming together, right? And the problem is nothing seems to bother you about this choice, but it bothers somebody else. And so they'll come to you, and they'll say something to you. And usually it's like your parents, right? Or it's like a friend, or like moms are really good about this. Like, honey, that sounds great. The problem is I think it might be illegal. You know, there, there's this tension where, you know, somebody else hears the plan you're coming up with, and they go, okay, now hold on a second. Like, I, I know that sounds good to you, right? But what's your wife going to think about this? Or what's your husband going to think about this? <laughs> what is that noise? Does your boss... <laughs> Okay, something's going on. Who knows? All right. We got somebody watching ESPN in the back somewhere. All right. Welcome to Journey, where anything could happen. Does your boss know? <laughs> we got like people. It's interference or All right. It's interference, so just ignore it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be, the, I'm going to make this a point in my sermon. All right. Does your boss know about it? Can anybody, can you afford that? Doesn't your, your contract rule that out? So you have to pay attention to this tension. And the problem is sometimes we don't see it, so it's someone else that brings it to our attention. Now, what happens sometimes is this creates relational tension, doesn't it? Because when somebody else brings something to our attention, it sometimes bothers us. And I'm including myself in this, but sometimes we have a tendency to dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller, right? We believe that because, you know, this person's telling me, and so we create arguments in our head. Like, what does she know? What does he know? He's never walked in my shoes. He's never run a company. She's never had to navigate the things that I'm having to do with. In fact, sometimes what we do is we villainize these people that bring up this stuff to us. And we're like, well, she can't even run her own life. So, so who is she to tell me how to run my life? Or look at their kids. Like, why should I listen to them about what their advice is? Because look at the way that they raised their kids. There's actually a term for this in psychology called genetic fallacy. And the idea behind genetic fallacy is this, that we discount the information because of the source from which it comes. It doesn't matter if it's good information or not. We immediately discount it based on the origin of the source. And we can write people off. We can choose not to trust people. Okay. And so here's the thing. Maybe the tension comes from us. Maybe the tension comes from outside. Wherever it comes from, we should take time Pause and allow this tension to be something that we work through. If it bothers you, if there's a moment where you have the little cartoon moment where you feel like there's two forces pulling against you, right? Let that bother you. Don't ignore it. Is there a tension that deserves your attention? Don't allow the pressure of time or someone else's agenda force you into a decision that you may soon regret, especially in the big decisions in life. Now, there's a fascinating story in the Bible that's going to uh, kind of relate to this that we're going to take a look at, and it's about the life of King David, Israel's eventual second king. Now, this is one of these weird stories, um, but maybe you've heard this, but I love this story. And essentially what happens is we, we lower the story of David. David steps onto the pages of history as a shepherd boy, shepherd boy during the season of his life. And as a kid, a prophet comes along and tells him that one day that he's actually going to be the next king of Israel, which is a big deal as a kid to be told you're a king, right? All right and, and so he has this moment. Now, this prophet shows up, but of course there's a problem. Israel already has a king, and his name is Saul. 
The problem is Saul isn't doing a very good job, and so God decides that eventually Saul has to be replaced. And because David is someone, as the scripture tells us, that kind of goes after God's heart, he decides that David's going to be the next king. So time goes by, and eventually there's this scene that most of us are familiar with, and it's the legendary scene when David encounters the Philistine giant known as Goliath. Now, we all know this story. I mean, it's referenced all the time, David versus Goliath. After David kills Goliath, there's this moment in the community, there's this moment in the kingdom where David becomes a household name, and people start to celebrate David. In fact, some people believe that David is the mightiest warrior of all, and he's leading the Israelites into these battles, especially against the Philistines, and David becomes really, really popular, so popular that he exceeds the popularity of old King Saul, which was not good. Because Saul is also a jealous man. And so the interesting detail that we have to remember too in this story is that Saul is David's father-in-law. Okay, so allow that tension to sink in, right? We, we all, any father-in-laws just love your son-in-law? Okay, you ever tried to kill him? Because this is about to happen. And so <laughs> he decides that he's going to kill David who happens to be his son-in-law. So David is forced to flee and he becomes a fugitive, but he's also a legend. And so there's all of these men that have already decided in their hearts and their minds, no matter where David goes, we're following David. And so David has these mighty men that follow him. And so dozens and possibly hundreds of men flock to David's side. So he's out here and he's trying to escape Saul. Well, Saul knows that he can't defeat David in battle. David is not only a skilled warrior, he's collected skill, skilled warriors, but also he, he, when it comes to warfare, he, he's more advanced than Saul is. So Saul knows he's got a few hundred men. So what Saul does is he gathers about 3,000 soldiers. Now, 3,000 soldiers in ancient times is a large army. This is not a small army. This is a huge army. So King Saul pulls together about 3,000 soldiers because he fears David, and he figures he has to have so many people if he's going to take David on. So David is now resting in a cave or in the mountains in En Gedi, and he's resting there, and he's staying there to try to avoid Saul's capture. And he doesn't want to go to war with Saul. And so there's this story that picks up where Saul finds out where he's at. He gets this inside information. And so he goes to En Gedi, and he's going to confront David and hopefully defeat David and just wipe this out. I mean, at this point, he is dead set on trying to kill David to wipe him out. He doesn't like the reputation that David's getting. He also wants his own son, Jonathan, to become the next king. So there's all this drama, all of this tension in this moment. Well, in En Gedi, what we find out in the story, and this takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul is riding his horse along with his army, and nature calls. He has to go to the bathroom, right? And we believe from the story it's number two because he has to go into the cave to do it. Okay, I added that detail, but it's just a fun one. So he's got to go to the bathroom. And so they find this cave, and, and he goes into this cave to use the bathroom to take care of business. Now, if you know the story, there's an interesting detail about this cave. When David and his men hear that Saul's coming, this is the very cave that they run into. And so imagine this scene. David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave, and all of a sudden they can just see a silhouette of a man that looks like Saul enter the cave, find a place in the cave, remove his garments, and start to go to the bathroom. I mean, what are the odds? 
The stars are lining up. This seems like a no-brainer. From David's perspective, this is best-case scenario. He, at this point, he can do whatever he wants to Saul. He's in the cave. His men are in the cave. There's nobody there to stop him. He's already been told he's going to be the king by God. Saul is trying to pursue him and trying to hurt him. I mean, for all of us in this room, this would seem like an omen. This would seem like a clear sign from God. There's no tension This is what God wants us to do. God has delivered David's enemy into his hands. He's already been appointed the next king. Everybody knew he was next. The only thing standing in his way is the current king. And here's what the biographer of this story tells us happens next. David's men sees the same thing. And they see Saul, and they're sitting there, and they're going, here's the guy trying to kill not only you, but all of us, and he's been pursuing us, and he wants to eliminate us. And and David, like, you're the one that everybody wants to be the king anyway. You you see the the conversation going on. Like, we, we could do this. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, here's what it says. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So the men are trying to convince because they have an agenda. They don't want to be hiding out in a Getty in the desert. They don't want to be hiding out in a cave. They want to go home. And they know that David is the man that can make this happen. And so he's starting to feel a little bit of pressure, right? I mean, this is what you predicted. This is what the Bible spoke of. Like, this is the moment. Let's stop being fugitives in the wilderness. This is the perfect scenario. David, just come on, just do it. Kill the king before the king kills us. And so it feels like the perfect moment. And so you can imagine the emotion in the cave, and you can imagine the adrenaline that David must be feeling, and you can imagine the pressure that David must be feeling. Because here's a decision that has to be made, and he has these forces that are pressuring him, and it feels right the right thing to do. But here's the thing we know about this story. David felt something else, and what David felt was tension. And David decided this is one of those big enough moments in life that maybe I should actually pay attention to the tension that I'm feeling. In his mind, something wasn't right about this scenario. Something wasn't right. And so he stops and he pauses. David paid attention to the tension. He let what was bothering him bother him. And what we hear from the story and we know that happens is David starts to approach Saul, who's unprotected and he's not even paying attention to what's going on. And it dawns on him as he's making his way to his king to potentially kill the king, he gains clarity. And what David realizes is that he's about to murder the king. This isn't war. This isn't combat. This isn't justified. This is murder. This can't be right. And we'll later see it in later writings that one of the things that dawns on David is this, that who made Saul to be king to begin with? Well, it was God. And so who is he to do this, to murder the king so that he can become the king if he's not sure that this is what God's plan is for him? And so David does something that not very many people would do. In spite of the pressure, in spite of the expectations of friends just a few yards behind him, And in spite of maybe some signs even telling him, this is the moment, David changes course. 
And David allows the tension that he feels about this choice that he just doesn't feel right about to get to him. And here's why I think that David did this, and I think some of us need to pay attention to the tension. See, David didn't know what the actual outcome would be, right? I mean, he could kill Saul, but then what happens? Do the 3,000 men just bow down to him, or do they still try to kill him? He doesn't know. There was no guarantee that things would work out the way he envisioned. Remember, the reason he gets to be the king next is because he's the man after God's own heart. He's the humble one. He's the wise one. He's the one that makes the better decisions. Much later, he makes terrible decisions, but at this point in the story, he's made good decisions. So that's why he gets to be king. And so I think that he stops and he pauses because there's no guarantee that if he kills the king this way, that he gets to be the king, right? I mean, there's this tension there. There's no guarantee that if he controls this situation, if he does what he's going to do right now, there's no guarantee of the outcome. And here's the part where we're going to talk about next week, but we're just going to tease it a little bit. This is why you and I sometimes make the choices that we make and ignore the tension. Because every single one of us, we think we can control outcomes. We think that we know what's best. We think that if we just force it just enough that we can control the outcome. And I tell people this in counseling, I'm probably a terrible counselor, but here's the thing. Um, it's scary how little you actually have control of. You really don't. It's an illusion. And so for David to sit here and to justify this, even though everybody else may have, no, there's a tension that he feels. And he also knows, listen, he can't control the outcome. He doesn't always predict the future right, and neither do you. Do you know what? You ever been disappointed? You ever been disappointed? Do you know why you're disappointed? You know where disappointment comes from? Disappointment is when we experience what we thought we had control of and we actually don't. Disappointment is it doesn't work out the way that we planned or the way we designed it. Because again, we think we can control things. Ignoring the tension that you feel when it comes to big decisions is sometimes the thing that sets you up for disappointment. And so David doesn't walk past this moment. He allows the tension. He's inches away from Saul, and it dawns on him. He doesn't want to be the man known as killing the king. I mean, imagine this is going to be the story for his rest of his life. This is going to be his legacy. I mean, can you imagine years down the road, David sitting down with his children and his grandchildren, and they come up to him and say, hey, Dad, tell us about the time that you snuck up on Granddad when he was taking a dump and you slit his throat. Tell us that story again, <laughs> right? You're so brave. This is not the story that David wants to tell. And in verse 5, we see this moment. The writer tells us, verse 5, David was conscience-stricken. His conscience, there was this tension. And he pays attention to it, and he changes his course. And instead of murdering Saul, what he does, he goes up to Saul, and he takes a piece of Saul's robe, and he cuts it off. And you're sitting there going, well, that, that's a little, that doesn't sound like the wise decision, but, but listen to what happens next. So he cuts off a piece of, of Saul's um, robe, and he walks back into the cave. And his men are back there, and they're like, did you do it? You know, what happened? And, you know, and, and, and David, you know, what happened? 
And he tells them he didn't do it. Here's what he says. The Lord forbid, and he says it again, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing there, to which I bet his men whispered, wouldn't let us do it. The text tells us that David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And so Saul leaves the cave, and he walks out of the cave, and he goes back to his horse, he goes back to his men, and then one of the most dramatic scenes of the Bible He walks out, out into the sunlight, and right behind him, coming out of the darkness in front of 3,000 men, is David, the giant killer. Can you imagine the drama of this moment? And they see that David's holding something. And what he's holding is a piece of Saul's royal robe. And then David bows down to the king because that's what you do when a king is in your presence. You bow down and he stands back up. And in that moment, David has proven to everybody that he's the better man. And once again, David is the hero in his own story. And then he has this talk. And here's what he says to Saul. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See, that, is, there, that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are here hunting me down to take my life. In, in other words, ready? Hey, Saul, maybe there's a tension you need to wrestle with. Because you're out here trying to kill me. I had the chance. Listen, I've done nothing to you to this point. And, and so while David wrestled with his own tension and made the right decision, maybe he's saying to Saul, Saul, Saul you've got tension you need to wrestle with. Listen to this. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And then listen to this, this is a great line. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? Ready? Remember how sometimes we said somebody asks a question and we try to ignore it because we don't like where it's coming from? But listen to who's asking, he's saying, you're the king. Why are you out here chasing me? A dead dog, a flea. Come on, Saul, this is your story. Pay attention. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. In other words, I'll wait. And I'll allow God to determine the outcome, not me. I will not take matters into my own hands, and I will not play God in your life, and I will not play God in my life. And now all eyes are on Saul. And what is Saul going to do? He's been humiliated by David, but not by his military skill, but by his wisdom and humility. And maybe for the first time, Saul pays attention to the tension in the moment. And in a moment of clarity, he gathers his men and he leaves. David paid attention to the tension. He did not feel the need to control the outcome. He made the wiser choice. So what happens next? So just a few months later, Saul and his army, they're, they're in a battle with the Philistines. And there, there's this random archer stationed behind the Philistine line that launches an arrow 
towards the Israelite army. But somehow this random arrow finds a seam in Saul's armor, and he's mortally wounded. And Saul falls off of his horse onto his own sword, so he would not die by Philistine hands. And when the word reaches the city, the citizens proclaim David the king, and he becomes the king without murdering the king. Now, here's why I tell you the end of the story, right? Because I think those few months, just a few months later, I think David might have thought to himself, ready? If somebody had told me it was going to work out this way, that would have made that cave decision a lot easier, right? Right? You ever been there? Like if someone would have told me it was going to work out this way, then that, that, that tense decision, that hard decision, listen, I mean, if God had showed up to David and said, David, just a few pages from now, the Philistines are going to take care of Saul and you become the king anyway, and you don't have to make this terrible decision. You actually get to pay attention to the attention and make the wise decision. I mean, wouldn't that have been so much easier if David had just known how it was going to play out? But he didn't. And neither do you when it comes to the tough decisions you have to make. Because that's not how life works. But that is why we have to pay attention to the tension. That's why we don't always have to take matters into our own hands. Especially when it comes to the tough choices. Especially when it comes to the choices that we feel this tension about. That's why we dare not trust our ability to predict the future or control outcomes. And so here's the question. It's super simple. When it comes to choices that we make, especially the big ones in life, the hard decisions in life, is there a tension that deserves our attention? And if there is, you should really let it bother you. Let it bother you until you know why it bothers you. Let it know why, why it's there. Don't ignore it. Don't brush it by, right? Because that tension that conscience-stricken question that David wrestles with may be the very way that God is protecting you and protecting your family and protecting your story. It may be the very question that keeps you from making a decision that you actually regret. And I realize in the moment it's super inconvenient because you're feeling all this pressure and we got to make choices quick and we got to do it this way but don't let that tension go by without paying attention. So here's the question. Week three, is there a tension that deserves your attention? And if so, you should pay attention and you'll almost always be glad that you did. Let's pray.